You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Well, it's my great pleasure today to welcome Dr. Mikola Repchuk. My name's Lada Bilanyuk, and I teach in the anthropology department, and I specialize on Ukraine and popular culture. Uh, Mikola Repchuk is a Fulbright Fellow at George Washington University. And uh, when he's not a Fulbright Fellow, he is a research fellow at the Institute of Political and Nationality Studies of the National Academy of Sciences of Ukraine. He's also president of the Ukrainian Penn Center. Um, for those who don't know of the Penn Center, it's an international writers organization that champions freedom of speech and human rights. Um, he's also on the editorial boards of many prominent journals, such as Kritika, Porumnania, Journal of Southeastern Europe, and on juries of international literary awards. And he also recently received the Benemerito Medal of the Polish Minister of Foreign Affairs. I feel that these formal posts and awards don't quite encompass um, uh, Dr. Ryukchuk's contributions. He's indeed one of the prominent writers and theorists and political analysts in Ukraine today. I had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Ryukchuk. I was recalling this when I was Starting out my graduate career at University of Michigan, he came to visit. It was actually his second visit in 1992, and I remember being struck by how intense and, and engaged he was. And um, I've been able to get him to know a little bit better since then at various conferences, both in the US and Ukraine, and more informally. Um, he has, uh, he's a prolific writer, both in the literary and analytical genre. He has numerous articles and several books on civil society, state and nation building, nationalism, national identity, and post-communist transition. Uh, and they're both numerous and multilingual. So for example, uh, De la Petite Russie à l'Ukraine, uh, published in 2003 in French, Die Reale und in die Imaginierte Ukraine, 2006 in German, Ukraina Syndrom Postkolonialny, which is Polish or Ukraine? Polish, I thought that was. Um, and a recent uh, publication in, that he has done in Ukrainian and in English, Gleichschaltung, uh, Authoritarian Consolidation in Ukraine from 2010 to 2012. Um, he's also written, written more literary works, and it is from one of these called Popredne Zitya, A Prior Life, uh, that there's a couple of quotes that introduce this book, and I translated one of them because I thought it captured nicely sort of what Mikhail Ryabchuk is to, to many people in Ukraine. And this is written by Alexander uh, Boychenko, who is himself a commentator, sometimes satirical uh, writer. And uh, I don't know if my translation quite does it as well as he did, but he says about doc Dr. Ryabchuk's contributions. Let's be honest, any idiot can write editorial columns in this day and age. In fact, almost all of them do. And some of them are deluded that they've discovered the secrets of writing a la Ryabchuk. But there's no secrets here. To write like Ryabchuk, you have to be smart and witty, erudite but not didactic, 
mature in content and hooliganish in style. And also to be morally guided and conscientious, but not to consider yourself a moral authority and conscious of the nation, because that would be overkill. To put it simply, it is enough to be Ryabchuk, a smiling stoic in a hopeless world. Will his collections of writing change someone's heart? And Alexander says, in, in my case, it does. And when I don't know what to think of these or those phenomena in our political bordello, I just search for something that Nicola has written about them. I imagine that everyone would like to have someone like this in their life, their own Ryabchuk, for that constant regrounding. I am lucky. For me, my Ryabchuk is Ryabchuk himself. And I count myself also lucky to have Ryabchuk himself as my Ryabchuk. So on that note, welcome. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Lada, so much. You know, after after this introduction, probably I shouldn't speak uh, any shouldn't speak, but just to stay as a, as a monument to myself. Uh, thank you, everybody, for coming, and thank you for inviting me here. Uh, I feel it's rather a difficult uh, task to uh, talk about uh, the country, which is uh, far away, like ten thousand kilometers away, and uh, ten uh, time zones away. Uh, and uh, to, to, to speak here in, in Seattle, uh, which, uh, you know, in America, which uh, faces its own problems, uh, its own elections, and, uh, and so on. Uh, but I hope uh, um, I'll find some, some clues, some, some key, uh, and some aspects which might be interesting for you. Uh, Ukraine, I believe, is an uh, interesting uh, country in both uh, practical terms and, and uh, theoretically. Uh, in practical terms, uh, which I, I'm not going to discuss here, but I believe that Ukraine is some sort of front line today. It's a place where uh, not only uh, Ukraine uh, resists very, very, very uh, uh, strong uh, enemy, enemy which is not actually dangerous for Ukraine, but for the entire world order and for, for uh, at least for Europe. Um, so uh, a lot of uh, European values are tried, uh, are tested in Ukraine today, in notions of solidarity and, and uh, all so-called uh, international uh, law, international order, uh, and of course very difficult trade-off between uh, values and interests, which almost never coincide. Uh, so uh, in, practical terms, in practical terms, Ukraine is really very important. Uh, but here I'm going to discuss some, uh, some theoretical peculiarities which also make this country, Ukraine case, very, uh, very interesting and uh, significant. Uh, first of all, I'd like to, to discuss, uh, from my point of view, very interesting, very interesting question, why Ukraine, the country which uh, has been considered, had been considered for, for years as a cleft country, as a divided country, as a country as a wedge of, of, of collapse, of split, uh, did not uh, break up after Russian invasion, after very strong uh, assault, uh, both military and economic and diplomatic, uh, media, pro propagandistic, and so on. So this is this very very serious question, and also um, as a some sort of, of follow up as a continuation to this question, I would like also to discuss uh, the end. Uh, why, at the same time, this uh, unity, this rally around the flag, which uh, was largely caused by Russian invasion, uh, still did not result uh, uh, 
in complete unity. Still, 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 the country is not. I wouldn't say is divided, but still there are a lot of ambiguity, a lot of ambivalence, and uh, a lot of internal uh, contradictions. So uh, the picture is not so pinky uh, as uh, it may look. So. Uh, I'm not going to deny, uh, I'm not going to question the, the, the statement, uh, very, very popular statement, very widespread uh, opinion that uh, Ukraine uh, was consolidated uh, after Russian invasion. But still, I try to problematize this issue. This is my, uh, my uh, task. So uh, as I uh, mentioned, Ukraine is uh, broadly considered a, a divided country, and very often this divide is represented in very, very odd, odd, very weird way. Uh, this is a um, map from a very influential uh, German newspaper, uh, Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, which represented Ukraine shortly after um, uh, Orange Revolution uh, as a divided country. But this division was, uh, as you can see, uh, very artificial. It has nothing to do with reality, because uh, you, you, can, you can depict political divides in Ukraine uh, in different ways, but definitely not along the Dnieper River. It absolutely has nothing to do with reality. Because neither Odessa is on the western side, nor uh, Chernihiv and, and, and Sume or Poltava are on the um, so-called pro-Russian side. So this, this very, sim very simplified vision uh, of, of Ukraine, but it's, it, it ref largely reflects uh, simplified idea about Ukraine in Western media, in public thought. Uh, Ukraine, as, uh, which allegedly consists of pro-Western, pro uh, pro, pro, no, it's not pro-Western. In, in, uh, in mass media, it's characterized as pro-Russian East and nationalistic West, which is absolutely uh, odd definition, because uh, incompatib incompatible uh, adjectives are put uh, together. Adjectives which belong to absolutely different semantic fields. Because if you, if you speak about uh, pro-Russian uh, East, probably you, you should uh, counterpose it to pro-Western pro or pro-Ukrainian West. If you speak about nationalistic West, you probably should look for some other nationalism in the East. Uh, because in, in this case, you would, you would refer to, to the same semantic field, but not, not too, too different. But anyway, I'm not going to, to, to discuss these odd uh, things, uh, even though um, they're not completely uh, groundless, because uh, of course there are, there are various divisions in Ukraine, and uh, the most prominent is probably this one, which is uh, political, which stems from results of political vote, and it's, it has been Mm, have been rather stable within the past uh, 20 years, I would say. Uh, divide which, as you can see, do not uh, coincide with the Dnieper River, but rather, um, if you are aware, uh, if you are uh, aware of Ukraine's history or history of Eastern Europe, you would recognize this uh, line where the orange, so-called orange Ukraine ends. Uh, as the uh, southeastern uh, borders of Rzeczpospolita, uh, of the first Polish uh, state, Polish Commonwealth. Uh, Polish Commonwealth and so-called Hetmanat, Hetmanshina in, in the east. Uh, so there's another problem, how these historical, very old historical borders still survive and are reflected in the political map, in the map of political voting. It's, it's another um, issue, which also I will not uh, going to discuss here. It, it just, just confirms our uh, vague idea about significance of history, that history is still, you know, this path dependence uh, is important in a way. Uh, 
but uh, uh, despite all this uh, device, despite, despite all these uh, divisions uh, and various contradictions in Ukraine, uh, as, as I mentioned, the country did not collapse. Uh, despite these you know, predictions of collapse, both on the Western expert side and, of course, in, on the Russian side. In, on, the Russian, on the Russian side, it looked like, like self-fulfilling prophecy, because all the Russian experts and politicians, they never stop saying that, you know, Ukraine is an artificial state, it's a failed state, and it has no right to exist, and it, it would uh, uh, fall down at the, at the first, first uh, win. Uh, here I um, brought a couple of um, uh, quotations from various, various experts, uh, quite reputable experts, who very, rather u unanimously in one voice uh, assert that, uh, that Ukraine uh, got stronger after Russian invasion ra rather than weaker. Uh, just you know, a couple of, of sentences. Uh, Putin has united Ukraine like never before. Uh, Ukraine, Ukraine outrage over Mr. Putin's annexation of Crimea has consolidated Ukraine's national identity. Uh, the upshot of Putin's war has been the exact opposite of what he hoped to achieve. And then uh, two more two more quotations. Uh, Vladimir Putin has done more for Ukraine independence than any other single figure. <laughs> so, um, and uh, finally, um, it's very very uh, reputable British expert James Sher from Chatham House wrote that uh, uh, in winter uh, 2014, a Russian state uh, ideologist assured me uh, that by next winter there will be no Ukraine. Ukraine is still here, and Ukrainians know who they are. Despite war and annexations, Ukraine is a stronger country than it was in 1991 or even early 2014. And, and here is a sort of a conclusion to all these optimistic uh, statements, to, to all these optimistic narratives about uh, changes, uh, transformations of Ukrainian identity. It's a um, quotation from uh, Tetyana Zhurzhenko. Uh, Ukrainian scholar who lives and works today uh, in Vienna, and uh, she summarizes uh, uh, ideas in the following way. She wrote that uh, Russo-Ukraine war catalyzed the creation of a political nation, Ukrainian identity, which for so long had been associated with ethnicity, language, and historical memory, suddenly has become territorial and political and thus inclusive. For the Russian-speaking urban middle class, along with small and medium-sized business owners and the intellectual elites in the East, Russia's anti-democratic tendencies, its self-isolation, and its uh, growing hostility to the West make it easier to identify with a potentially European Ukraine. I, I, I can just fully agree with this statement. Uh, Tatiana Zhuzhenko is from Kharkiv uh, herself. This is uh, uh, one of the easternmost uh, Ukrainian cities. And as uh, um, uh, uh, Lada mentioned here, one of my uh, numerous uh, heads, uh, uh, as a president of Pen Club, I have a couple of um, uh, half a dozen of members of Ukraine Pen Club, which are from uh, Donbass, who uh, are actually refugees who, who escaped from after Russian invasion. And all of them write in Russian. All of them have their book market in, in Moscow. But still, they moved to Kiev, even though it was uh, economically it was to great disadvantage because they lost a huge Russian market, and the Ukrainian market, market book market is not as sustainable and profitable. But nonetheless, they, uh, they, uh, their reason for 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 movement for immigration to 
continental Ukraine was like this, like like explained by uh, Tatiana Zhuzhenko. Uh, so um, this uh, all these uh, optimistic narratives are also largely uh, confirmed by sociological data. If we take a look at uh, various opinion uh, surveys um, carried out today in Ukraine, we also see uh, significant. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, before. <laughs> Yeah, I'll jump this. Uh, maps, uh, maps show how gradually, uh, from one elections to other elections, this you know um, orange Ukraine, this pro-Western part of Ukraine, expanded, so to say. Uh, so this is, these are electoral maps uh, from 1991, uh, 1994. I skip 1999 and finally 2014. Uh, and here, um, uh, sociological data. Uh, sociological data which refer to various uh, trends in Ukraine, but all of them reflect growth of uh, pro-West and pro-Ukrainian orientation. Uh, this is, uh, these are responses, people's responses to uh, the question, uh, uh, do you consider yourself a patriot of Ukraine? And you can see uh, growth of um, patriotic or self-declared patriotic feelings. Uh, here's uh, data which reflects support for independence. It's also you can, you can see uh, growth of uh, this um, attitude. Uh, here is um, data which reflects uh, Ukrainians' support for uh, European integration, for uh, EU uh, membership. It also uh, reflects significant growth and a significant decline of support for the so-called uh, Eurasian Union or U Union with Russia and Belarus and so on. These two, these two lines, they uh, moved uh, in the opposite uh, direction. Uh, the same with um, Ukraine's uh, attitude to, uh, to NA NATO. This, this is even more important change because NATO, uh, since uh, NATO's bombing of Yugoslavia in the late 90s was extremely unpopular. In Ukraine, it was at the level, it was below 20%. And, and suddenly, it jumped from, from 19% to, as you can see, to 40 and 50. Uh, and opposition against NATO declined. So it's even more important uh, change, uh, I believe. Uh, which also is caused, uh, in a way, by uh, Russian invasion, uh, and also reflects a sort of identity changes in, in Ukraine. Uh, here is um, a chart which reflects uh, Ukrainians' attitude toward different countries. And also what is here very important, uh, the most positive uh, perception is for Poland. So Poland uh, took the f first place. And, and by the way, replaced Russia. Because historically, traditionally, Russia was number one. Ukraine had the, the best attitude, the, the most favored country, country was uh, Russia until, until uh, Putin's uh, invasion. Now uh, Poland became number one. Belarus retained the second place. Belarus still is perceived as you know, part of this you know, East Slavonic uh, brotherhood. And the European Union, Georgia, Lithuania, Canada, uh, Germany, USA, uh, Moldova, and uh, Russia in the, bot uh, the bottom now, uh, with only 3% of uh, full uh, sympathy. And uh, a couple of other uh, data. Uh, here's a data which reflects a dramatic decline of popularity of Russian media. 
uh, Ukrainians today, they prefer to watch local TV and national TV, but not Russian. Uh, they, they get news from uh, local and uh, national websites, but, but to a lesser degree from Russian. They listen to uh, local and national radio and not to Russian. And uh, print, print media also are mostly local and uh, national read, but not, not Russian. This is also very, very, very uh, significant, very dramatic decline. And even, even within one year, it, it declined further, you know, from uh, 2015 to 2016. So it's uh, it's general trend. Uh, this is uh, this similar data about uh, trust in this media. So they are not they decline uh, influence of Russian media declined not only in terms of not a, not only in numerical terms but also in terms of uh, attitude of trust. Here you can see also how how uh, low in the last in the last uh, part of this uh, in the, this last chart uh, reflects this very low trust in in Russian media. So uh, this is the last the last uh, charter, which um, reflects support uh, Ukrainian support for uh, regional autonomy or for so-called uh, federalization of the country, idea which is promoted by uh, Moscow and by some pro-Moscow uh, politicians both in Ukraine and in Europe, and but. Uh, Surprisingly, it has very little support in Ukraine, even in, uh, in, the, in the south and in the east. Uh, it's not supported by more than 18, 15, 18% of uh, local population. So uh, it's difficult to sell out this idea, even under uh, pressure from Mr. Mer uh, Hollande and Madame Merkel. Uh, it's just non-starter for negotiations. Uh, so, um, mm, it seems that we have uh, quite a, a nice picture. Ukraine really did not collapse. On, on the contrary, Ukraine uh, consolidated, got more un united and unified. Uh, but still, uh, of course, still uh, some uh, divisions remain. And if you, if you uh, break down uh, those uh, nice results, which I showed you before, you would see that there is significant difference within, between the groups. Uh, typically, scholars uh, consider three major uh, ethno-linguistic groups in Ukraine. They um, find out different attitudes, very significantly different attitudes uh, among uh, Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainians, Russian-speaking Ukrainians, and ethnic Russians. Uh, and you can see here that uh, their attitudes towards some very important issues uh, differ, really differ significantly. Um, and in the, this, in, in the top uh, table, uh, you can find answers, uh, Ukraine's answers to the question about Ukraine's independence. If you, if referendum about independence had to be uh, tomorrow or today, for example, how would you vote? Would you support or not? And you can see that uh, Ukrainians speaking Ukrainians, of course, are the most supportive for independence. Russian-speaking Ukrainians are less supportive, and ethnic Russians are even less supportive. And, and you can see dynamics from the year 2001 to 2013, which was the year bef before Russian invasion, before Euromaidan and uh, Russian-Ukraine war, and the year 2014, after, after the war. And you can see that you know, uh, the, the changes within one year from 2013 to 2014 were 
as significant or even more significant than within the uh, previous 12 years. Uh, in all these changes have rather positive dynamics. All these changes, they uh, show that year by year, Ukrainians become more pro-Ukrainian uh, within all groups. But uh, the dynamic uh, within the, uh, until 2015 was very slow. Within one year, Ukrainians jumped forward uh, much, much more than, than within the past 12 years. Uh, especially Russian-speaking Ukrainians. Here, the dynamics was uh, probably the most, the most significant. Uh, so uh, today we have a very, 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 we have absolute majority of Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainians who support uh, independence. We have a very clear majority of uh, Russian-speaking Ukrainians, and we have plurality of Russians who uh, support independence. Significant part of them uh, are undecided. You can note uh, that uh, the remaining figures, 45 plus 40 is just 75. So 25 are undecided, which also uh, reflects some sort of confusion and very difficult situation of, of these people who are in conflict uh, between uh, their, their two states, so to say. Yes, they, they have civic loyalty for Ukraine as citizens of Ukraine, but at the same time, they have cultural and historical loyalty to, to Russia, which used to be their country, and many of them associate themselves with Russia, many of them have relatives. So they are really divided, and many of them cannot simply answer. Therefore, we have 25% of undecided here. So, uh, uh, I, would see, I would skip this uh, table below, because it just reflects uh, the same, but with different uh, other questions. Questions about, uh, would, are, you, are you ready to defend Ukraine uh, with arms? Are you... Uh, do you agree that Russia is an aggressive state, and, and so on. Um, all of them are more or less about the same. Uh, what is important, and I try to illustrate you here with these uh, charts, um, that Ukrainian, um, Ukraine consists of really of different groups, ethno-linguistic groups. But they are um, attitudes of people who belong to these groups, they largely uh, overlap. And here is a wonderful chart which very clearly illustrates it. It involves a little bit of mathematics, and I'm not going to, to deliver here a lecture about um, this uh, normal Gaussian distribution. But if you know a little bit about probability um, density function, uh, you may understand what, is, what the story is about. Uh, so, uh, here we have a horizontal uh, axis which uh, uh, reflects uh, people's uh, et, uh, pro-Western, pro pro-Russian attitudes. So, point zero is neutral, so to say, and you have uh, more pro-Russian pro to, uh, to, to your right and more pro-Western to your right and more pro-Russian to your left. And uh, so uh, this uh, data is uh, oper operationalized by uh, uh, number of questions. Number of questions are put, and uh, ultimately you can um, transform it into figures. Uh, on the uh, vertical axis, we have so-called uh, probability uh, function, which reflects uh, how how likely such or such or such specific attitude uh, might be. So the, the most probable attitude is uh, here, at the top, 
of this curve, and this is the most probable attitude. Pro, pro, pro European, pro European, pro European, pro Ukrainian, or pro, pro Russian. So, uh, what is important in this? This all these curves, all, the, all this data comes, and, and you see, uh, yellow line stands for uh, Russian, uh, for ethnic Russians. Uh, blue line stands for Russian-speaking Ukrainians. Red line stands for uh, for uh, Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainians. So uh, this data comes from uh, from uh, the period before Euromaidan and before Russian invasion. So what is the most important here? Uh, that these curves overlap, which means that uh, people, uh, that these different groups, they have different uh, attitudes, but nonetheless, uh, significant part, substantial part of them have the same attitude. They belong to the same uh, field, so to say. And this is highly important, because if you, if you take a look at such uh, uh, charters, such curves uh, in really divided societies, uh, you would see them absolutely apart. For example, you know, in, uh, between Serbs and Croats during Serbo-Croatian War, they, they had nothing in common. They, they almost did not overlap. They belonged to different. From this point zero, they belonged to different uh, fields. Uh, which means that you know, in really divided societies, you cannot be at the same time Catholic and Protestant, like in, like in Northern Ireland, for example. You cannot be at the same time Serb and Croat. You belong to, to different to different fields, and uh, they are rather hostile. In Ukraine, uh, ironically, they can be both. And this is another paradox, and this is what actually keeps these communities uh, together, uh, overlapped and, uh, um, and fused, basically. Uh, what does it mean? It means that, for that on the Russian side, for example, uh, ethnic Russians in Ukraine, they, yes, they can identify themselves as ethnic Russians, but at the same time, politically, they, uh, many of them, as you see from the previous table, many of them identify themselves also as Ukrainian citizens. So they, they can be Russians, both Russians, and in a way, Ukrainians. And the same with Ukrainians, it's another paradox. Many Ukrainians also, they can be Ukrainians, but at the same time, they can identify themselves as uh, maybe not Russians, but Ruski, as belonging to Rus, not necessarily Russia. That's, that's something that's really very difficult for foreigners to understand because uh, the, you know you can you can understand this in case of England because they have English and British, which are not the same. In Russia, English and British is the same word, Russian. Uh, Gogol was, for example, he was Ukrainian and and uh, Ruski, but not Russian. Like uh, Walter Scott was Scottish and British, but not English. Gogol was uh, Ukrainian and Ruski, but not Russian. Uh, Ukrainians do not identify themselves with Russia as political entity, but many of them identify themselves with Ruski, uh, with Rus as civilization, as some sort of uh, Orthodox Christian uh, rule. Uh, so this creates some sort of, of ambiguity. Uh, well, but again, as I, as I put it, um, this data comes from the period before um, uh, the war, before the Euromaidan, and uh, later on I show you how it looks today, how these curves uh, transformed now. Uh, here, uh, but in the meantime, I also um, uh, show you briefly that uh, ethno-linguistic differences are not the only differences in Ukraine, because uh, uh, there are also uh, significant, significant differences, of course, regional between, between East and West. People uh, answer uh, 
to the same questions in different way. For example, do you consider yourself patriot of Ukraine? 95% in the West agree with this, only 2% disagree. Don't, don't consider themselves patriot of Ukraine. In the East, uh, only 84% consider themselves patriots of Ukraine, and 7 do not. So there is, uh, there is a difference, but you know, basically, in both in the West and in the East, very clear majority positions themselves as patriots of Ukraine. And the same with some other questions about, um, again, support for independence, etc., etc. So um, divides, divides do exist uh, between East and West, between Ukrainians and Russians, but in all these cases, these divides are not as, as principled. Uh, as, they are not so strong, so sharp, that, uh, to de so, so that to destroy the country, so that to, to split it. Actually, the same differences uh, do exist uh, in terms of uh, be between the different groups in terms of education or age. It's also a little surprise. The um, people with higher education are much more supportive for independence. They are more consider themselves more patriotic than people with uh, lower education. And younger people, predictably, also they they uh, they are more uh, more pro-Ukrainian and more pro-Western than people with um, uh, older uh, of older age. Um, what does it mean? And uh, I I'm going to argue that in all these cases we have the same uh, factor in uh, uh, in practice uh, because all this. Um, all these uh, factors like uh, education, like education, like ethnicity, like language, like uh, age, uh, all of them, they boil down to the uh, issue of values. Values are decisive. So ultimately, not, not ethnicity, not language, not age, not education, but, but, uh, but values. What does it mean? Um, you see, uh, this is another table which um, also uh, reflects uh, people's answers to different questions. Uh, all these questions can be interpreted as value-based, value-oriented. Value uh, this is about um, contradiction between democracy and strong hand, between freedom of speech and censorship, between uh, plan, uh, free market and planned economy, and finally about nostalgia uh, for the Soviet Union. Uh, in all these cases, again, we have, we have the same picture. People with uh, higher education, they are more, most, much more supportive for, for democracy, for freedom of speech, for uh, free market, and uh, less nostalgic for, for the Soviet Union than people with uh, lowest education. Uh, younger people also predictably are more supportive for democracy, for freedom of speech, for free market, and less nostalgic for the Soviet Union. Ethnic Ukrainians also are more supportive for strong hand, for, 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 for democracy, for freedom of speech, for market, free market, and less nostalgic for the Soviet Union. In all these cases, uh, the same factor is in play. Why? Because um, uh, in all these cases, factor of age, factor of ethnicity, factor of uh, education, they influence people's knowledge and people's system of values. Uh, People with higher education, of course, they are more informed. They are better aware of uh, processes, of historical tendencies, and so predictably, they, of course, they are more supportive for uh, than less educated people. Um, they are less, they are less nostalgic for the Soviet Union. 
and, and so on. Uh, ethnic Ukrainians are also uh, more supportive for these so-called Western values, uh, more, are more likely to be supportive. Sorry, not, not more supportive, but are more likely to be supportive. Uh, than ethnic Russians. Why? Just because uh, ethnic Russians, historically, they had much more reasons to identify themselves with the Soviet Union and with Soviet system of values. They had more reasons to consider Soviet Union as their own state than, than uh, ethnic Ukrainians. So this is, again, how ethnic factor works. Not, not because Ukrainian identity is better than Russian identity, but just because it, it, uh, social, social and historical conditions inform this specific, specific set of values. Uh, so we can, see, we can see these significant differences, but again, we can see uh, very important changes. Uh, in this last um, column, uh, I uh, found new data, not only from the year 2015, because all these data come from, from the time before the revolution, before, the, before Euromaidan. Uh, but for, um, uh, but uh, in regard of the question about the Soviet Union, about nostalgia for the Soviet Union, I found new data from the year 2015. And you can see very significant change in all groups, in uh, education groups, in ethnic groups, and in uh, age groups. Everywhere dynamics is uh, quite positive. Uh, everywhere uh, people are much less uh, nostalgic about the Soviet Union. Uh, of course, it's predict predictable that younger people are becoming less nostalgic, it's quite clear. Even though, uh, don't be surprised that still 14% of young people say that they feel nostalgia uh, about the Soviet Union, even they were born uh, after the Soviet Union collapsed. <laughs> that's, uh, that's another paradox. Uh, yeah, because, uh, because there is uh, family memory, parents, grandparents who uh, communicate some information. Uh, but it's, of course, it's the most clear case in, in uh, in this age category. But also educa uh, educated people. Of course, um, not today not only uh, people um, with high education are uh, not nostalgic for the Soviet Union, they, because they, they also were not nostalgic, majority of them, and, and this majority just increased. But also people with uh, lowest education, they also uh, changed. Yeah? Still majority is nostalgic. Because it's also predict predictable because people who are um, uh, people with lowest education, they are typically also with lowest salaries, and they are dissatisfied with social transformations, with changes. Of course, they have more reasons to, to be nostalgic uh, for, for some mythical past, uh, past, which is idealized as time passes. Uh, the most interesting is, uh, changes here. Both ethnic Ukrainians. Uh, change their attitudes, not, not, not only, not plurality, but today clear majority is not nostalgic about the Soviet Union, but also uh, changes in uh, ethnic Russian group occurred very significant. Uh, before the war, before the Russian invasion, majority of ethnic Russians had nostalgia for the Soviet Union. Today, it's minority. Plurality is not nostalgic. And still, significant, significant group is undecided. Again, what is characteristic for this group? Again, we have almost 20% of undecided people. They still have this uh, split. So now, uh, as I promised you, we can uh, see how this data is reflected in, uh, in the charter, in this uh, probability uh, function. 
Um, here we have uh, um, curves only for two groups, not for three as before, but for two groups. Uh, we have um, a red line which stands for, uh, for Russian-speaking uh, uh, citizens of Ukraine, and we have blue line which stands for Ukrainian-speaking citizens. And uh, dotted line is uh, re refers to uh, the period before the war, before the Euromaidan, and uh, the whole line after. So uh, what, ah, and one more nuance, uh, the scale is reversed here. It's not, it's not my charter, uh, so I use uh, already published material. Uh, the scale is reversed, so which means that we have, um, to the left, we have a more uh, pro-Western pro uh, orientation, and to the left, from point zero, we have to, uh, to the right, we have uh, more pro-Russian. So this is point zero, and to the right is uh, pro-Russian attitudes, to the left is uh, pro-Western. Pro uh, so what, what is uh, significant here? Well, first of all, you can see that both uh, red lines and, uh, and uh, red line and blue lines shifted uh, to the left, which means to the pro-Western orientation. It's, it's noticeable. Uh, this is one, uh, one change. But also, you can notice that a blue line shifted more than red line, which means that you know, uh, changes, uh, uh, this pro-Western attitude uh, affected uh, Ukrainophones much more than uh, Russophones. Uh, but, but still affected. Both groups were affected by, by these changes. And uh, also interesting phenomenon, um, this, this curve, which uh, re reflects uh, probability of some specific attitudes of uh, Russian-speaking population, it became uh, um, uh, flatter, flatter. It was steep, rather steep, now it's flatter, and it's more uh, dispersed, which means that attitudes are, uh, the, the, the group is uh, di disintegrated. Attitudes are much more uh, dispersed. It also reflects this, you know, undecisiveness and, and uh, pr problems with uh, very clear, uh, taking a clear position. Uh, but, but generally, uh, what is the most important is that uh, these um, two groups, they are different, and we can see from this uh, chart that they are really different. But they, uh, their attitude, their general, uh, their general attitude, their value system is shifting into the same direction. And this actually makes Ukraine uh, consolidated and creates this impression that the country is, uh, is consolidated. Now, uh, um, I'll draw attention to uh, the other side of, of the issue. Because, um, Picture, of course, is not so, uh, well, narrative is generally optimistic and it's positive, but still, you know, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, there are a lot of uh, very serious uh, problems and, uh, and, and challenges, not only of military character or economic character, but, but also uh, in terms of um, identity. We, we talk here about uh, identity, about uh, consolidation or maturing of Ukrainian identity, and st it's still problematic. Um, I'll give. Yeah. Uh, here, I'll, I just, I just would like to give you a couple of examples. Uh, for example, uh, as I mentioned, uh, and probably you noticed, some of you may have noticed that not only uh, uh, majority of Ukraine support independence, but also still significant uh, minority uh, is nostalgic about the Soviet Union. So. Um, 
part of these people, but they have, they have both attitudes. They are pro-independence, but at the same time, they are nostalgic uh, for the Soviet Union. At least 20% of them, they have both attitudes. This kind of schizophrenia, but at the same, you, at the same time, you would understand this if you take a look at uh, little children. It's, it's typical infantile consciousness who simply do not understand that you know you cannot buy with this money only ice cream or Coca-Cola. It's not enough money for both. And they want to have both. Or maybe another example, uh, children who uh, have to choose between uh, parents who are divorcing. It's also not, not so easy to choose, and little children usually do not understand why and, and so on. So this is, um, this is very reflective of this Ukrainian ambivalence, uh, which would take time probably to overcome. Uh, also, another example, 72% consider Russia as an aggressor state, but, uh, but only uh, 39 consider Russia state as alien. And only 45 support closed border and visa regime. So again, it's, you know, uh, they are ready already to recognize that it's uh, aggressive state, but still, they still feel some uncertainty about uh, how alien the state is and how sh it should be isolated, it should be um, uh, alienated. So um, again, it's, it's, it's uh, from my point of view, it's a very, very remarkable sign of ambivalence. And perhaps the most interesting and the most funny uh, story is here uh, in these two, two, two examples below uh, because uh, it refers to some historical issues. Uh, in one case, for example, in one uh, survey, 32% um, approve uh, the 1654 Periaslo Treaty, which is uh, in Soviet propaganda was interpreted as a reunification of Ukraine and Russia, historical reunification of both uh, nations. So you know, uh, as many as 32% uh, approve this uh, treaty, and only 26 disapprove, which also means a significant, uh, almost 50% uh, have no, no idea about this, are undecided. But you know, at the same time, 41% uh, of respondents in the same survey approve the 1659 Konotop victory of Ukrainian troops of Cossacks uh, in the battle at Konotop against Moscow. Which occurred, which occurred five year, uh, years after Periaslav Treaty. After, five years uh, after so-called unification of Ukraine and Russia, Ukraine Cossacks beat uh, Russian troops and Konotops, and Ukraine support both events. You know, one, uh, majority support, yeah, here and there. Uh, and finally, the, the, most, the most remarkable uh, result comes from, from the last uh, question. Uh, quoted here. Uh, it was about attitude, uh, respondents' attitude, Ukraine's attitude toward um, uh, establishment in 1918 of Ukrainian National Republic, which was short-lived Ukrainian Republic with very leftist but non-Moscow, non-Moscowite non, non government. 49% uh, of Ukrainians approve, 49% versus 14 approve uh, establishment of Ukrainian National Republic. Uh, but at the same time, 45 versus 21 approves the establishment of uh, establishment of Ukrainian Soviet Republic in uh, in Kharkiv. Uh, even though you know this Ukrainian Soviet Republic, which was proclaimed uh, in the same year in Kharkiv, uh, largely resembles something of today's Donetsk Republic and Luhansk Narodna Republic. It was also a very artificial uh, creature uh, produced by Moscow in order to crash uh, government in Kiev. 
And ultimately it happened. You know, ultimately the Ukrainian Soviet Republic in Kharkiv won against the Ukrainian National Republic in Kiev. Um, so, um, nonetheless, Ukrainians support both of them. And this is also maybe might be considered as, as a proof of schizophrenia, uh, but uh, but it has deeper meaning because independent Ukraine uh, in 1991 emerged as paradoxically as a continuation of both of these entities. Uh, in terms of um, institution continuity of institutions of uh, ruling elite, uh, it was continu continuation of Ukraine Soviet Republic. In terms of symbolism, of reference to, to anthem and uh, national narrative uh, or historical narrative, it was continuation, of course, of Ukraine National Republic. It was a hybrid state. Ukraine today's Ukraine emerged as a as a uh, hair of both these two republics. So these people who seem to be schizophrenic, they are not so schizophrenic because probably intuitively they feel that that probably this hybridity is some somewhere in reality. It's actual hybridity. Uh, so uh, we have a lot of this ambivalence, and finally, to uh, before before I uh, summarize, uh, I would say that there is one more problem which uh, uh, remains to be uh, solved in Ukraine, uh, which um, is not today very visible. Because we really have something like rallying around the flag, because there is a war, there is external aggression, but still uh, the um, relations between these two major groups, which I outlined here, still require some uh, legal and legitimate solution. Today, this unity in Ukraine largely uh, resembles unity, typical unity in many uh, post-colonial or anti-colonial uh, states where both Creole population and Aboriginal popula population unite uh, to fight uh, the former colonizers. Like it was in Latin America when they fought together against Spanish dominance or Portuguese dominance to, to liberate these uh, states. But it does not mean that their uh, internal relations are absolutely uh, clear and unproblematic. They may, these problems may come to, come to the fore eventually. Of course, in Ukraine, these contradictions, these differences are not so sharp as in Latin America. I simplified greatly. Uh, but still, uh, I, I gave you this example to understand that still, you know, uh, this uh, unity, this consolidation does not mean that internal relations are absolutely unproblematic. It's something that is to be solved eventually. Now it's not an issue, because we have much more important issue. We have to, uh, to fight uh, real uh, aggression. It's existential threat for the nation, the threat for both Ukrainophones and Russophones and Ukrainians and Russians and Jews and Tatars, and all of them are uh, together in the same boat. Uh, all of them actually fight not only for Ukraine, but also for some f uh, civic liberties and so on. Ukraine is uh, it's, it's, uh, it's young democracy, it's fledgling democracy, but it's democracy. It's absolutely a different system than uh, in Russia. And also many people understand this, even if not all of them have loyalty for specific government in Ukraine or for Ukraine in general, but still they have uh, some value preferences. They prefer uh, human rights, they prefer liberties, they prefer uh, their right to to express their opinion freely, and uh, you, are, you would not be arrested in Ukraine just because you wrote in uh, Facebook something that you know our government dis dislikes. Uh, so uh, the problems remain, but uh, essentially, what is the most important, and this is my uh, conclusion, 
It's not my conclusion, it's, it's quotation from Igor Torbakov, uh, the um, Russian scholar I highly uh, respect. Uh, he wrote that uh, the notion of identity cannot and should not be reduced to ethnicity and or language or to the ways the past is remembered and represented. Because it also includes an axiological dimension, that is the value system that social groups or society at large uphold. So, Torbakov wrote, it is precisely in the realm of axiology, not ethnicity, that the identity conflict between Ukraine and Russia is currently taking place. I fully agree with this statement. I, I believe really this is the essence of, of problem. Uh, this, you know, identity, this identity, this axiology, axiological um, difference, uh, of course, it correlates with ethnicity, with language, with age, with education, but it's only correlation. In the essence of problem is, of course, uh, well, different value systems. It's clash between uh, democratic, pro-Western um, uh, group of society and uh, forces which represent this interest, and uh, uh, post-Soviet or crypto-Soviet, uh, very uh, reactionary, very uh, back, backward-looking. Uh, this is the essence of the conflict. Uh, you may retranslate it into issues uh, and, and re-articulate it as a conflict of, uh, you know, as ethnic conflict, regional, but it's not true. In this case, it's only correlation. But real conflict is a clash of different identities, and any identity, as you know, is uh, attached to some system of values. So this is identity conflict and value system conflict. Uh, I feel I mm, should stop here, more or less conclusion. Uh, and I would be happy to answer your questions if you if you have any. Thank you. May I ask a trivia question before others ask deep questions? <laughs> um, your first two maps were in German, and I was surprised that Lviv is still called Lemberg, yeah. which is pre-revolutionary Habsburg. Austro-Hungarian. Um, Not only Lviv, but also my book is entitled in German, Gleichschaltung. Even it's in English, book is in English, but the key word is in German. Uh, uh, no, of course, it's, it's, uh, it's a joke. Uh, first of all, um, of course, I'm not responsible for Germans, but uh, as far as I know, uh, in Germany they still have this tradition to use old names. Uh, so it's, it's not 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 only about Ukraine. They use all this as they used to as they used to use. They still use them. Uh, so it's not something against Ukraine. It's 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 not in order to undermine Ukraine because they use the same with uh, many other in, in, in Czechoslovakia and so on. Um, Yes. Um, of course, of course, it can be changed if the government uh, insists that it should be called this way and not this way. It should be Ukraine and not the Ukraine. It should be Beijing and not Peking or something like this. It should be Myanmar and not Burma. Yeah. Uh, but it requires some uh, government uh, efforts, uh, persistent uh, writing and calling and, and so on. Um, I don't know whether it's worth in this case, whether it's all important. It's more important if it's uh, to distinguish Lviv and Lvov, but Lemberg is neutral. <laughs> <laughs>
Yes. I'd like to ask a hypothetical. If some of the questions you asked her today had been posed to the people living in Crimea mm -hmm. before the annexation, oh, what yeah. do you think the answers mm -hmm. might have been? Oh well, it's uh, difficult. Uh, to, difficult to say. Um, you know, we have we have some data from the period before the war, before Russian invasion. The last data, actually, uh, I, I maybe I even have it in my in my um, flat, in my uh, pen drive. The last data from Crimea, from all all the Ukraine, including Crimea, comes from the mid uh, February of 2014. This is was the uh, the high point of Euromaidan, and there was opinion survey, which uh, asked uh, people uh, whether they would like their region to secede from Ukraine. And uh, I remember that not a single region had uh, any majority. In Crimea, there was plurality. It was something like 45, 44% uh, who supported uh, secession. Uh, the figure which uh, largely uh, coincides with the figure of uh, Ukrainian national referendum in 1991, when also 54% in Crimea supported uh, independence and 46 or something opposed. Uh, in Donbass, it was something like about 30% who would like to stand for secession. Yes. Uh, 20, 20 something in Odessa and Kharkiv, uh, 15 uh, in Dnipropetrovsk, uh, Zaporizhia, and uh, close to zero in all other regions uh, in Western Ukraine and Central Ukraine. Surprisingly, Central Ukraine in all recent developments behaved almost like the Western Ukraine. Because before that, it was more ambivalent and more ambiguous. Now they are rather, they are rather similar. And that, that's Kiev you're talking about. Yeah, especially Kiev. Yeah. Well, Kiev always, uh, Kiev always behaved like more like West Ukraine. It's another paradox. I remember how uh, my uh, my mentor, Professor Sporluk, uh, joked. Uh, he told semi-jokingly that uh, Kiev is a remarkable city, unique city, because it it speaks uh, like Donbass in Russian, but words like uh, Galicia in Ukraine. <laughs> That's interesting. It's a very good example of this, you know, civic uh, civic patriotism, which not is not is not necessarily uh, tied to issues of language and, and culture and so on. It's it's more based on civic values. But Kiev is a good example of this. Yeah. City which is predominantly Russian speaking, but nonetheless it's uh, very very staunchly pro-Ukrainian. I'm interested. Excuse me. I'm interested in how large your database was for the surveys. It was not my. Uh, all this data is taken from um, opinion uh, surveys uh, from from uh, four different companies. Uh, in Ukraine, we know more or less uh, who can be trusted and who not. I can I can mention you five companies in Ukraine which are reliable, basically, and because there are many more of them, and uh, most of them are uh, produce forgery. Um, all of them, are the typically in Ukraine, they use um, sample national sample. Uh, typically, it's 2,000, 2000, 2000 plus people from different regions. And they try to reflect uh, more or less uh, ethnic composition, demographic composition of the country. Uh, but 2,000 people, yes. Mm -hmm. 
So in terms of kind of these two different ideological groups, what do you think is, or I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on what is spreading that ideology within Ukraine. So like, what is it that's kind of encouraging the, the pro-European mm. aspect? That's a very, very, very good question. I, you know, uh, Ukrainian, Ukrainians' uh, pro-Westernism is a sort of, um, in many cases, it's a, uh, pro, they are, in many cases, westernized by default. Uh, which, which means that, uh, and it's especially visible uh, uh, in the case of Ukrainian elite, ruling elite, political elite, uh, they are very, very hesitant, very reluctant, very lukewarm uh, westernizers. Uh, the reason is that, you know, Ukrainians simply, they don't have uh, any choice. The entire Ukrainian, all the Ukrainian identity, modern Ukrainian identity, emerged in the 19th century uh, as under very strong pressure and denial from the side of Russia. So they had no choice either to be dissolved completely and assimilated and, and uh, subjugated and so on, or to, to uh, position themselves as we are not Russians, we are, and, and who we are. If we are not Russians, we are Europeans. So they created this uh, myth of our European belonging, that we historically belong all the time uh, to Europe, and we are artificially separated from Europe. This typical rhetoric of all the Central, Euro Central European states. It was the same in Poland, in Lithuania. We are in, uh, Milan Kundera wrote about this in his famous essay, uh, Tragedy of Eastern Europe. He argues that you know, uh, Czechoslovakia historically never had anything with uh, Ruski Mir, uh, Russia. We, we are Europeans. We are sold out in Yalta by Stalin, but we still belong to Europe, and we must come back. Um, this is the same rhetoric was applied by Ukrainian nation buildings, which it was quite popular. So uh, what, I, what I mean is that, of course, it doesn't mean that all Ukrainian uh, ideologists, uh, all Ukrainian nationalists were staunchly pro-European. Some of them were pro-European by default, just because they didn't have any other choice. And Europe was not uh, all the time uh, embodiment of liberal democratic values. You, there was a period of 1930s, 40s, when it was uh, uh, rather illiberal, uh, so also. And that time many Ukrainians, but they were also pro-European, but not very liberal, so, so to say. Many of them were sympathizers of Mussolini, etc. But they were pro-Western in any case, just because they had no, no, no other choice. Uh, so we, we can be skeptical about this Westernism, because it's not, um, in many cases, it's ambiguous. But at the same time, uh, I can argue that uh, even if it's not quite sincere, uh, even if it is imitation in some cases, especially in, on the side of political elite, uh, nonetheless, it um, gradually it forces uh, both them and society to accept these values. Even if at the beginning they, it is just verbal acceptance, but gradually it becomes more and more uh, essential. Volens nolens, it's just a you know, natural process. So I, personally, I look rather, rather uh, positively on this. I have a question. Yes. Um, so I, I know that you use data that other organizations collected, but very often, and, and the categories are Russian-speaking Ukrainian, Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainian, mm -hmm. and yet so many people are bilingual. Yes. How, I mean, most people are bilingual. How uh, reasonable do you think it still is to use that category? I mean, when the statistics show that ideologically they overlap, but do, do most people mm. in Ukraine, would they still agree with 
characterizing themselves as primarily one or the other, or is there a growing? Well, I fully, I fully agree that in Ukraine most people are bilingual. Uh, moreover, most of them claim to be fluent in both languages, at least two-thirds uh, of them, yeah. 90% uh, Ukrainians and two-thirds Russians claim to be fluent in, in other languages. Uh, uh, so in Ukraine it's not so, so surprising to see, to observe uh, debates in the parliament in both languages, uh, language of convenience. Any MP speaks as, as he or she wishes. Uh, without translation, or in TV. Not a single Ukraine channel, TV channel is uh, monolingual. All of them have programs in, in both languages, and sometimes you know, the talk shows are uh, carried out in both languages, so speakers speak either in Ukraine or Russian, again, a language of, of convenience. Sometimes they shift from one language to the other. Sometimes some programs have presenters who one presenter speaks Ukrainian and the other Russian. It's, it's deliberately they do this. So um, it's, it's very, very strange country in many terms. Um, and of course, I agree that it's not so easy to, to define who is who. Um, but you know, any, any taxonomy is uh, conditional. It's not, it simplifies the reality. Um, so, of course, its instrument is not perfect to, to define this for these three categories, um, but uh, you know, but it gives some idea about you know it, it reflects some some correlation. So it does it does not reflect any determinism, but it reflects correlation. And these categories are basically they defined by people themselves. So. Of, of course, I understand that, that um, pollsters, they impose this categorization upon the people, and therefore many people uh, refuse to answer or are undecided because it's difficult to, to answer. But also this ambiguity is reflected in this overlapping of these figures. You know? It's also proof of, uh, of, of uh, fluidity of these categories. Indeed, they are very vague. But still, they, have, they give some ideas. They give, at least they give ideas that it's not so simple in Ukraine, that really these groups uh, are, uh, not only interact, but also overlap. And this is something that is rather unusual for uh, societies which are really divided. If you, if you analyze societies which are in, really in deep conflict, which are really split, uh, cleft, and, and uh, ready to break, uh, it's not the case of Ukraine. It's, it's just two, two overlapped. Uh, all these groups are too overlapped to be to be split. Um, one would hope that this kind of sophisticated analysis would make its way to the State Department, for example, mm. so that policy decisions mm. would be made. Do you have any sense of whether it gets from A to B uh, in that regard? Well, I, uh, I believe that uh, American experts are very well aware of everything in Ukraine, and they are able to inform their police policy makers. Uh, um, personally, I have some, you know, some trust in, in, in American analysts. Uh, not so much uh, for European, uh, because they are very different. It's much better in Germany, much worse in France. Uh, not so, not not bad in England. Different countries have, have different um, level of understanding of Ukraine, of analysis, but uh, in America there are not enough good think tanks which produce good analysis of Ukraine issues. It doesn't matter how American you know, policymakers are uh, aware of this, how they are ready to listen to, and, but, but analysis is basically good. Atlantic Council provides perfect uh, analysis of Ukrainian issues and, and so on. 
But yeah, but there are some some very um, some some things which are not so easy to explain to foreigners. For example, you know all this issue of of uh, uh, Russian-speaking minority in Ukraine, which is favorite uh, Putin's issue. You know, and uh, uh, but he never he never mentions that. You know, this it's not. It's not so clear who is minority, who is majority in Ukraine, basically, you know, because like, um, if you have people bilingual and if you have historically uh, Russian-speaking world much more uh, advanced, dominant, it was much more urbanized because all the cities were Russian-speaking and Ukrainian province was Ukrainian-speaking, so it created some sort of um, uh, inequality. Ukrainian-speaking world was basically world uh, marginalized, socially marginalized. So society which uh, emerged from this, it was like you know, like racially divided. Right? Like it was like like black uh, disadvantaged province speaking Ukrainian and urbanized white uh, uh, cities speaking Russian. Uh, so uh, you know, today uh, of course situation is difficult um, uh, in in a sense that. Uh, nobody knows how to how to eliminate the structural uh, inequality. Mm-hmm. We have legally we have equality. We have basically, you know, Ukraine Constitution guarantees uh, the right to use any language in Ukraine and have education and so on and so on. And people benefit from this. We have a lot of ethnic schools which are supported by the government. Um, but still, you know, um, on one hand there is very clear understanding of many people that Ukrainian. Uh, language and culture they had been for years uh, marginalized and ne- they need some sort of state protectionism like you no know, like Gaelic in Ireland it should be protected you know not English but Gaelic um, but at the same time uh, any attempt to protect Ukrainians they also provoke reaction of people who perceive this as you know uh, um, unfriendly act against Russian especially Moscow reacts to this uh, you know, very fiercely that you know it's, rights of uh, Russian-speaking people are violated and so on. Of course, it's not true. Uh, in Ukraine, reality like, is like this, is that you know that some, some protectionist measures for Ukrainians, they, so far, they simply manage only to, to, to balance the real inequality, the structural inequality. So they don't, they don't give real advantage to Ukrainian speakers. They just more or less equalize, make the field more or less level. But still, it's not quite level. There are a lot of you know, disbalances. But it's, it's a complicated story. I, I wouldn't go deeper. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at this from Putin's perspective, does he see the relative freedom of speech and TV in Ukraine as a threat to, to his domestic base? Or is it see a more sort of geopolitical? No, I don't think that uh, s- that uh, freedom of speech in Ukraine is any specifically threatening for him because he uh, he managed to com- to rather successfully um, eliminate all the sources of uh, independent ex- free expression in Russia and channels and uh, and to manage ma- marginalize. Um, these sources. Uh, Ukraine is dangerous, I believe, in, in other terms for, for him. Ukraine is dangerous as potentially success story. Because in this case, of course, it would be a disaster for, for Kremlin. If Ukraine manages to, to reform, to, 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 to become fully westernized country with, uh, you know, with rule of law, with uh, functioning democracy, and so on, it would be, it would be really complete defeat for, for Moscow. Because in this case, you know, you, 
they, most Russians would see that you know it's possible. It's you know Russia also can can get transformed. Russia can also be Western Westernized democracy. So this example of Ukraine is, is dangerous. Um, you had kind of drawn a division between Russian or Russia as a political entity and like the Ruski cultural identity. Do you think that as Ukrainians move away, as your data was showing, from you know support for Russia as the political entity, that they'll also move away from the Ruski cultural identity in uh, like ways like you know prevalence of Russian? Uh, I would say that it's a difficult choice for many people, and this data reflects it. You know, all this ambiguity, and, and so it reflects difficulty of this choice, difficulty of you know uh, this contradiction between Ukraine political loyalty, commitment to some uh, you know pro-Ukrainian, pro-Western values, and uh, traditional sympathy or interest and ties with uh, real or imaginary Russia. In many cases, it's imaginary Russia, by the way. Um, many people do not know real Russia. By the same token, they have uh, very, and you have seen this, they have very strong sympathy for Belarus, which is also, which, which is absolutely unknown in Ukraine. It's also part of this mythical world, uh, this Islamonic uh, kind of ummah. Um, because, well, Ukrainians might be more or less um, uh, acquainted with Russia because they used to watch Russian TV and read Russian books so, and, and maintain personal contacts. But this, you know, uh, attachment to Belarus is absolutely irrational. We have very limited contacts with Belarus, uh, either personal or cultural or whatever. Even border between Ukraine and Belarus is uh, very uh, sparsely populated. There are very few roads and so on because it's territory which almost completely covered by swamps and, and uh, so... Chernobyl. Uh, and Chernobyl. And Chernobyl is there, yeah. So, <laughs> so really... Uh, but nonetheless, as you, as you have seen, uh, Belarus is rated as number two in the as num second fav most favorite country. Just because it's, it's part of this, you know, uh, Islamonic community, imaginary community. Uh, this long story, it was created long ago in the 18th century, uh, in times of Peter the Great, and ironically it was created by Ukrainian intellectuals, because all these guys like Prokopovich and so on, they were hired by uh, Peter, moved to Petersburg, and they developed all this idea of continuity between Kiev and Moscow, and uh, Little, Ra Little Rus and Greater Rus, uh, and so on. No, it was very rational choice on their side, because they were uh, minor, uh, minor stakeholders of of little rules, but they try to sell out their s small stake uh, at high value. Uh, they present, represented this little Rus uh, Kiev as a cradle of uh, Ruski, near Ruska, Russian civilization, and so on. But it was Ukrainian invention, ironically. So uh, all the time I tell my my colleagues that you know don't you shouldn't complain at, at Moscow because we, we invented this, we invented all these <laughs> stories. They never had this idea of continuity between uh, Kiev and, uh, and, and and Moscow. Well, they had in, in, in they had it in ecclesiastic terms, but not in a kind of national or something like this. It's Ukrainian fault. <laughs> so now we are paying, paying high price for this. Yeah. Are there any other questions? Yeah. 
So I guess growing up and through your observations of Ukrainian media, do mm. you see that you see a greater polarization of political and cultural ideologies before, after the mm. Russian invasion, and I guess even way before then? Uh, mm, it's good. Mm, good topic for a lecture. <laughs> well, uh, since you, know, there. Uh, you know, um, just today I happened to read, uh, incidentally, that 75% of uh, media, uh, not only in Ukraine but Eastern Europe, belong to oligarchs. <laughs> so, uh, people who promote, first of all, their own interests, but uh, on the other hand, uh, they play a rather positive role because they create some sort of pluralism. So, this positive role is especially noticeable in uh, authoritarian uh, regimes. Uh, in this case, they come to the fore because they are pluralistic enough. Well, today, uh, Ukrainian media, media, of course, they are, uh, they are versatile, they are very different. Uh, there is no voice, single voice, so to say. Um, and, uh, of course, none of them uh, support Russian invasion. It would be illegal, so it's just uh, against the law. Uh, but uh, we have, uh, in Ukraine, we have opposition, uh, which is in the parliament, representing the parliament. It's basically Yanukovych party, which was rebranded, and now it's called opposition bloc. Before it was uh, party of regions, and now it's opposition bloc, and they have like 10% of, uh, they won like 10% of votes. They are in the parliament, and they have, they have very strong mass media, by the way. They have the, the most popular, it used to be the most popular TV channel, Inter. Uh, now it's number two, but it used to be number one. Now it's number two channel, but still it's very, very influential. Uh, they have a quite popular uh, channel, um, uh, Ukraina, which is owned by Mr. Akhmetov, which is also number four or something in, in ratings. So they are well, well represented in media sphere. Uh, as I mentioned, they do not dare to openly support Russian invasion or something like this, but they, uh, their rhetoric is very tricky. They uh, talk all the time about peace. We should make peace. We should stop war. So it looks like like, like if Ukraine uh, carries out the war, if Ukraine is you know initiated this war and so on. This, this, this is uh, this is great hypocrisy. Uh, so they are they are heavily criticized uh, and uh, sometimes uh, too heavily, <laughs> I would say, but but not by the government, but by uh, some civic activists. Um, but generally, I would say that media scene is quite pluralistic and uh, any opinion can be uh, found. Even uh, There was even a guy who, um, in one of Frankivsk who uh, openly called uh, to sabotage uh, conscription to the Ukrainian army, and he was initially arrested. Uh, but ultimately, he won the court procedure because uh, in Ukraine, mar no martial law was uh, officially introduced. Therefore, government does not have a right, legal right, to, to mobilize people. And he won uh, the court uh, process, which means also that Ukraine is not so hopeless in terms of, of, uh, of rule of law, even though there are problems. But, um, yeah. I cannot imagine, for example, in, in Russia, anybody calling you know, not, to, not to go to, to the army or something like this. It's... <clears throat> yes, please. Um, here in the US, um, most people apparently now get their news online rather than from media or television. Mm -hmm. To what extent uh, does that play out in Ukraine as well? Um, there's rising concern here that it's allowing people to insulate themselves from opinions that are different from theirs. 
Um, yes, you know, the, uh, Ukraine follows global tendencies, but with some, you know, some delay, some time gap. So we have, um, yeah, because, you know, uh, I remember 10 years ago, less than 50% of Ukrainians had uh, internet access. So it's, uh, it changes. Uh, and of course, uh, the main source of information still remains TV. TV is main source for the majority, but uh, it changes because the younger people, of course, they are increasingly more, uh, they rely more on the internet and uh, social media and so on. So it's generational change. But still TV dominates. Okay. Really, but um, just following up on the oligarchy comment, since most media is controlled by some form of oligarchy, oligarchy. Not all, 75%. 75 percent. 75 percent. Since three quarters of the media is controlled by yeah. basically private interests, how much do you think trade agreements have come into play? For example, if people hadn't, what's the word, placed an embargo on Russia, if Russia was more supported in their, or at least not such so openly criticized for their invasion of. Ukraine, mm. do you think more media would support Russia, more media would, more media would be less supportive of an independent Ukrainian identity? How much do you think trade and economy plays into this? No, uh, I, I, uh, I said already that media, all the media, they support, uh, they're on the Ukrainian side and none of them support Russia. Uh, but they do this in different way because uh, some of them, as I mentioned, they are uh, they take so to say pacifist position, which is hypocritical, as I explained, because it uh, ignores the fact that it was not Ukraine who actually invaded Russia, but vice versa. And uh, even if we would like to establish peace today, and Ukraine would like to have peace, but uh, you know they still are shelling every day and shooting every day uh, and so on. Uh, so it, it's not up to us to stop the war. We would like to stop it. We would like to freeze this conflict, but it's not fro really frozen. Um, so uh, oligarchic ownership, uh, I don't think that it's politically harmful, but it's really harmful uh, economically because their main goal is to promote their some specific interests, primarily in the economic sphere. The same, uh, the same subversion they do in also in the parliament, because they also say they have some uh, factions, uh, they influence some MPs uh, which are on their payroll, and they, uh, their main care is about different uh, loopholes in, in the laws which are passed by the parliament. Not, not politics. Politics, is, for them, is not important. Uh, political issues. For them, it's more important to have these uh, huge uh, incomes, huge profits. And for, to, for this aim, they have, they have very good lawyers, and they manage to, uh, not to sabotage, but, but to create uh, loopholes in various laws which are very beneficial for them. Uh, very subtle, very, very small changes, very small amendments, but amendments which may result in, in huge profit. And uh, it's not so easy to recognize this, you know, this uh, potentially very dangerous changes in the law. This is ma their main, I would say, their main uh, goal. And the most, probably the most dangerous, the most harmful for Ukraine. Okay, 
Uh, just to piggyback on your question, I'm not sure if this is relevant to what you were asking about, but I thought I did hear that there was an embargo on Russian-produced films, yeah. and that that did affect what the oligarchs were able um, to show, well, so even like old... No, it is, it's not a big problem, because instead of this, they import films from all over the world, like you know, Turkish and, uh, and Brazil and... Uh, right, but it, but it reduces, I guess, the material that is available to people who are ambivalent, yeah. who might be yeah. doing like how that. How connected are Ukraine and Russia economically before Russia decided to invade? And now, how dependent is Ukraine on um, Russia in that sphere? Yeah. You know, uh, even before the war, the general tendency was uh, uh, trade exchange between Ukraine, Ukraine and Russia was declining. So it was tendency for years since the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's year by year, trade exchange uh, declined. And now it's uh, it's very limited, of course, for obvious reasons. Uh, but still, there is some some trade, uh, both legal and illegal. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the most important thing I, I, I believe is that Ukraine stopped, uh, uh, Ukraine actually became independent from Russian uh, gas and oil. Uh, just because it uh, buys the same Russian gas and oil from Europe, or allegedly from Europe. Uh, I, I don't know how this mechanism works. Maybe they, it's just uh, only on paper, because this gas goes via Ukraine to Poland and Germany. So I'm not sure whether it goes to Germany and back to Ukraine or just you know stops in Ukraine and what uh, is written on paper as bought from Germany. I don't know, uh, but at least it is very very uh, important because Ukraine, uh, first of all, Ukraine, Russia cannot dictate very high prices. They cannot be higher than in Europe because until until then, uh, in previous years, Russia demanded from Ukraine much higher price than uh, from Germany or other countries to the West, which is absolutely rational, it was political. Uh, before then, it was uh, even more uh, bizarre period when uh, Ukraine paid must, much less, but this, uh, mo this money uh, went to pockets of some specific uh, people in Russia and Moscow. So it was also a very source of corruption, uh, trade in gas and oil. Now this, uh, this source of corruption is eliminated. And by the way, uh, last year was uh, the first year when the profitability, uh, when Ukrainian company, national company, uh, Naftogaz, Ukraine, became profitable. It never was profitable. All the time it, it had losses. Now it's, it's profitable. Okay, thank you. So the process of decommunization, decommunization, yes. uh, which is basically building uh, streets, they take down Soviet monuments. So some Ukrainian citizens say that this is very, a very important process and it helps us uh, get our national identity. And then some people say that we have other more urgent matters Yes, uh, there is some. Um, there was some debate about this. The law on decommunization was passed uh, a year and a half ago. Um, actually, there were four laws, uh, and from my point of view, where they were, uh, they were controversial. Uh, but their 
essential meaning was rather positive. They, at least they, they had some, some very uh, questionable and dubious points, but basically they, I consider them, them positively. The most important thing was, of course, it was uh, uh, opening of all Soviet archives. Because Ukraine has nothing to do with the Soviet Union, Soviet Union was not Ukraine, and you know, uh, so I, I believe it's very, very logical, very honest step. As long as we consider our our country independent and we are not the successors of the Soviet Union, we have to disclose all the archives. So everything that was before 1991 is open, including all this KGB and, and so on. Um, and of course, uh, secondly, it was also very important to dismantle all this, you know, Lenin's monuments and uh, and so on, uh, monuments of totalitarian regime and uh, to change names, etc. I, I believe it's also it's also very important. Maybe this law had specifically this law had to be not about decolonization but about de decolonization. Because it affects not only uh, communist legacy, but also um, Russian imperial legacy. You know, all these names are uh, street names after Suvorov or Kutuzov and so on, Russian Tsarist uh, generals, which played, by the way, highly reactionary role. Suvorov never, never, carried, never carried out uh, any war in, on the territory of Russia. All his wars were somewhere in Europe. Um, so aggressive wars. But anyway. Um, I believe that uh, this this law uh, laws have they have some uh, disadvantages which were broadly discussed. Uh, what what is missing fundamentally in all these laws in all this process of decommunization? It is restitution of property. Ukraine uh, never dared to reconsider ownership. Of course, I understand that you know this Bolshevik confiscation occurred long ago, you know, 90 years ago. So it's not so easy to. But at least politically, these declarations had to be done. Because decommunization means primarily property. It's about property. It, it, should, it had to be signaled to, that we are coming back to rule of law. Uh, of, course, of course, I understand that it's difficult to find the papers. Difficult to, to, to prove this. It may take time. And it, of course, it requires some resources. So it can be, it, it can be, you know, somehow uh, postponed for some period. But politically, to, to send this message, to, to declare that we recognize illegitimacy of all this property takeover by Bolsheviks, and we are ready to return this property to owners if you manage to find documents and, and so on. Of course, taxes should be paid because you know there are no uh, people who are real owners. There are only heirs, and heirs should pay taxes for for this. So it can be, it can mitigate state coffins, state budget, you know. But anyway, this had to be done, and uh, I regret that it's not. Well, if there are no further questions, thank you very much. Again.